you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This morning we've got one of these uh, just incredible verses that I think everybody knows. You've probably heard it. You might have it on a coffee mug. Um, but I think it's important to continue to, deep, to deeply explore uh, God's Word. So Philippians chapter 3 Verses 12 through 16 is where we'll be today. And if you would, uh, when you get there, please stand with us as we read this together. Father God, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to your word. We're grateful for the truth that it has for us, the truth that never changes. We ask that you would um, allow us to hear and to understand and to know the truth of, of your word for us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now last week as we looked into Philippians, we talked about what it means to know Christ versus what it means to know about Christ. And Paul had written that for him, knowing Christ was worth anything. It was worth anything to share. He was willing to share his sufferings. He wanted to know the power of the resurrection so that he might somehow also attain to that resurrection, both in the life to come and also in this life here and now. And we might read these verses and, and think, well, well, duh. You know, of course, Paul would would, would think like this because, you know, he's the Apostle Paul. Um, and, you know, he wrote all these books. He risked his life and limb for the sake of the gospel. He had personal encounters with Jesus. But, you know, of course he can know Jesus. But I can't really relate to that. Well, he continues in this train of thought this morning. And he lets us know that he is in the same boat that we are in. He says that not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul is saying, look, I am not perfect. I don't have this already. I am still lacking. Now, what could he possibly mean by that? You know, and how, and, and, and how is that supposed to make us feel good anyway? If Paul doesn't have Christ, well, then who can have him? This is the same question the disciples asked Jesus when he told them how difficult it was for the rich to enter the kingdom of, God, of heaven. They were shocked. They were flabbergasted. They said, well, well, who then can be saved? And if Paul, of all men, says that he hasn't obtained this, we ask that same question, what hope is there for us? But Paul goes right on, he finishes in that same verse, he says that 
I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And how can we have any hope at all? It's because of these words, he has made us his own. This is one of the most beautiful things that we could ever hear, and this is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus Christ has made me his own. So today we're going to look at what that means, how it happens, and then what do we do as a result. Now this word, he made me his own, or make my own, this is a Greek word, and you'll find this, I think, in your, um, in your notes here. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come all the way through in our English translation. Uh, the word is catalambano. It's the same word to make me his own or to, or to make it my own. It's the, the same word. And, and the King James translates this word as apprehended. Others use the word seized here. It means to lay hold of or to obtain or to acquire. You know, historically, we, this has been used in the context of war or athletics. Think of seizing the enemy position or apprehending a criminal, a, a criminal or seizing the lead in a race or Grabbing the opportunity. And Paul is saying that I must seize Christ. I must grab onto him because he has grabbed onto me. And how was Paul seized? Well, he was seized on the road to Damascus. That's where Jesus made Paul his own. That's when he came face to face with Jesus. And Jesus brought him to his knees with this brilliant flash of light. See, that is where Paul first encountered Jesus. One commentator uses this, he says that this this is actually like, we can call it gracious, loving violence. Gracious, loving violence. To be seized by Christ is an act of gracious, loving violence. It's being taken by force. Now, why did Christ have to seize Paul? Why does he have to seize us? Well, it's not just that we're lost sheep. And we aren't just someone, we aren't just in need of someone to come and point us in the right direction. It's not as if we're just, you know, lost and wandering around somewhere without a map. And, and so often I think that we forget that God didn't come just to give us advice on how to live life a little bit better. He's, he's not like, um, it's, it's not like the dishwasher where I could come alongside of you and, and help you and show you how to fit everything precisely in there so that all your stuff will fit and it will all get clean at the same time. You know, our Christian life isn't like that. Our, our life is not like that. He doesn't just come alongside of us and offer us some pointers about how to live a better life. And why doesn't he do that? It's just because we weren't just a little lost and we're not just a little wrong. We were living, as he describes in the next section, as enemies of the cross. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6 through 8, it says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, how did Christ seize us? What well, says right here that he died for us, and he died a violent death. You know, we were enemies, sinners, ungodly, criminals, and he apprehended us. And he didn't do this to punish us. He didn't throw us in prison and lock away the key, or lock us in prison and throw away the key. He didn't just make us sit down and sober up for a little while until we got our wits back about us. He did it to save us. We can think of being caught in a rip current. 
Now, there's at least one family I know that's been in this particular situation uh, where they were out in the ocean and got inadvertently caught in the rip current. You know, you go out and you go swimming and you don't realize it and you get a little too far off. And before you know what's happening, you start going out to sea. Now, fortunately, in this circumstance, others noticed what was happening. And they were trying to warn them, and they didn't listen to the warning. They didn't understand what was happening until it was too late. And fortunately, or providentially, these other people took notice, and they took action. And it was too dangerous in the rip current for one person to go out and try to save someone. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to grab a bunch of people. You have to hold each other's hands and make a chain, a human chain, to go out and to grab hold of those people that are already too far gone. And clinging onto each other, seizing each other, they were able to rescue these people from the currents. For those who don't know Christ, it's not like they're just a little bit lost and they don't know where to go. It's that even if they know where to go, there's nothing that they can do to get there. And that's why God has to intervene in our lives. We were powerless, but at just the right time, like with the human chain of rescuers, Christ died for us. He apprehended us. He grabbed onto us and he made us his own. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, he chose us. He reached out to us. He seized us. He rescued us because we couldn't do it. And not only that, he brought us into his family. See, we go from enemies and sinners and criminals, dead in our trespasses, as scripture tells us, to becoming a part of the family of God. Being brought back to life. In Romans 9, uh, he says that those who are not my people, I call my people. And her who is not beloved, I call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. See, we were not his people. We were not beloved. We were not alive. And by making us his own who was not his own, he invites us to experience the love of the Father. See, he seized us. He made us his own. And so now, how are we to hold on to Christ? See, Paul writes that we are to seize him as well. To hold on to him just as he now holds on to us. As if you were being offered a hand in the midst of that undertow to cling to him as if he was our only hope and source of rescue. See, Paul says, I do not consider myself to have made it my own. And why is that? Well, he knows that at this point he's still in the water. He has been apprehended, but he is also clinging fast and is surrounded by the current. In the process of being rescued, would one dare let go of the hand that is holding on to them? Remember that we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Corinthians says that we are brought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
cling to him by glorifying him in our everyday life. And so many times we forget just how much it is that we need Jesus. You know, we don't see our sins as bad as, as, as that person, you know. And you're probably right, as long as that person is me. But if that person is anybody else, then we're probably worse off than we think that we are. Why would we let go of the chain before we get out of the currents? And Paul knows that on this side of eternity, he will never fully arrive. He can't say that I have obtained this fully. Do we get comfortable in our own assumed security that we forget how dire the situation is? And all that the Lord has done to rescue us. So how are we to live? Well, Paul says here that forgetting what lies behind, forgetting what lies behind, don't look back in the race, to press on ahead, to keep your eyes forward. Don't look to the past. Don't look to the left or to the right. Just this week, we've, we've, been, we've realized that we've been in our, ha- in our new house for a year. And, and every day for like the first 11 months, I think one of our kids had asked, can we move back to our old house? And we try to reason with them and explain to them, well, you have a yard now that you can play in and you have your own space that you can get messy and, and we can take walks around the neighborhood without having to worry about cars running you over. And, and, and still, it, it doesn't really matter. They, they want to go back. They don't like change. It's, it's different. You know, it's new still. And one of our, our favorite features about the new neighborhood that we live in is that there's these paved walking paths around the outside of the neighborhood so we can, you know, go out of our back gate and we can, we can take a walk without having to go on the street. And, and the path kind of winds behind people's houses and there's some retention ponds and there's, you know, turtles and fish and blue herons and all kinds of fun stuff that we can see. And it's a great place to go for a walk. But it's also a little hazardous place to go for a bike ride. And so we had been there, and we're starting to teach our girls how to ride their bike. And we're going along these paths, and again, we're going um, behind people's yards, and, and, and a lot of people have dogs, and what do dogs like to do when you come into their backyard space? They like to let you know that they're there. And so they run up to the fence, and they start barking, and they start barking, and, and, if, and if you've got a small child on a bike, well, they naturally look over at the dog. And so we're teaching our three-year-old, four-year-old how to ride her bike with training wheels and the dog comes rushing up to the back fence and she turns her head and looks that way and she turns her handlebars this way and in a moment she was hip deep in the pond that was right next to the path. And the first thing she says when she gets out is, I'm not beautiful anymore. And she's, <laughs> and she's covered in mud, head to her toes. And, 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 and to make matters worse, you know, I had said at the very beginning, she's going to fall in the pond. Because you could see she's looking back and she's looking to the side and she's going here and here. And she has no clue what she's doing. She, she keeps taking her eyes off of what's right in front of her. You know, what happened to her? Well, she took her eyes off of what was ahead. The same thing can so easily happen to us. You're not looking to the behind or not looking to the side. This can look like this can be several things in our lives. You know, first, don't look back to your former life. Jesus says that he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. We should never look back to our former way of life or to our former, sin, our former sinful life and, and look back uh, longingly, 
wishing that we can go back to the way we used to live. It would be like looking back to that beach and longing to jump back in the water of the double red flag right after we've been pulled out. Do we want to be right back in that same place that we started? And along with that, that means don't look back and carry the guilt that the Lord has forgiven you of. If God has forgiven you of something, you don't have to carry that anymore. You are no longer guilty. Don't be ashamed of something that the Lord has taken away. And now some of us in this room, maybe we don't know the Lord, and we have sin in our life, and it needs to be dealt with, and we need to take it to the Lord. Some of us have never done that at all, and some of us are are holding on to things that we have never asked forgiveness of. And we need to own those things and to take them to the cross, but we also need to be confident that when we do that, that God removes that guilt and shame, and we don't have to look back any longer at it in fear. But also not looking back means not looking back to our former spiritual accomplishments. Don't look back at those things that at one point in time you once did for Christ. If your relationship with Christ is based off of the things that you used to do, that's a deadly place to be. It's like the high school football player, the former football player that sits around with his friends 50 years after the game, still reminiscing about that one game and yet can never move past it. So Paul says to press on toward the goal for the prize. In order to really take hold of Christ, we have to forget both our achievements and our failures. And we must press on. And we must realize that we are in a race. And we must have our eyes on the goal. Now when I was in middle school, I ran track for two years. The first year, I also ran cross-country, and I realized very quickly that distance running was not an enjoyable thing. So my second year, I decided, well, uh, I don't want to do that distance thing. If I can be just run with the sprinters, they have it really easy in practice. Okay, if I could be in track and be a sprinter, the problem is I'm not really that fast. Um, So I couldn't do the 100-yard dash because, you know, everybody's way faster than me. But the 400 was this nice intermediate thing it was the it was the least amount you could run for the and, and not have to train with the distance runners okay um, the, the longest you can go in 400 I had a chance you know a, a whole way around the track so for a year I hadn't trained any distance running at all well then we got to a meet and we were short a runner in the two mile race I got volunteered to be a part of this race which I had not trained for and had no idea how to run. The amazing thing was I, read the enti- I led the entire race for four laps. But it's an eight-lap race. <laughs> and when I got to the fourth lap, I started cramping up. I started to get sick. I literally rolled over, rolled off the track, went behind the concession stand, got sick, and never got anywhere close to finishing this race. And that is the last time I have run distance competitively. You know, I didn't know the race, and I couldn't see the goal. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't press on. I didn't strain forward. I burned out. I literally fell by the wayside. See, the race of the Christian life is not a sprint. This is not a race about speed, but it is a race about completion. And the closer we get with Christ... The deeper our relationship with him grows, the more that becomes apparent to us. Paul says, for those of you who are mature, think about such things. 
See, mature people know what they don't know. Thinking I know everything is a great sign of my immaturity. Now, amazingly, I know so much less than I did when I graduated college almost 11 years ago. And I know incredibly less than when I started in this role as acting pastor three months ago. You know, but what I do know, I do know more certain. Now, I've come for me, I've, I've come to know that for me, the only thing that I can be certain about is that I'm certain of my sin and my need for Christ. I'm more certain that I'm inadequate, but I'm also more certain that Christ loves me. You know, how can I know his love? The Bible tells us this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us. He forgives us. And why can he do that? It's because of what he did on the cross. And it cost him dearly to offer us that forgiveness. And Paul says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Is the truth of Christ's love for us precious to you? Do you understand that you have been bought with a price? Do you understand what it cost him to make you his own? Do you understand that he did this not to punish you, but because he loves you and to bring you into his family? And if you understand that, then these words of Paul are for you. Forgetting what is behind, let us strain forward and press on toward that goal of the upward prize. And let's do that together. Let's pray. Father God, it can be so easy to forget all that you have done for us. It can be so easy to believe that we have somehow, some way, done something that has caused you to love us. And Lord, all we have to do is look into our lives. And we see it in your word. Father, there's nothing. There's nothing we bring to this. There's nothing that we have done or can do or could ever hope to do to rescue ourselves. Lord, we are so much more than just a little bit lost. And yet you offer us so much more than just a little direction. Father, we're thankful for the, the, the way that you have made for us through Jesus Christ. We are thankful for his sacrifice. And Father, we remember that this morning as we come to this table. We're grateful for the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray all this in his name.